Well, good morning, and uh, I wish you all a very, very happy and blessed Easter. Let's pray. Father, as we come together this morning to celebrate the event that changed human history forever, we ask and pray that you would speak to us from your word, and we pray that we will encounter, just like those women, the risen Christ here this morning. Amen. Amen. The tomb. The emphasis that Matthew draws out in this part of his gospel story is the tomb. It's referred to multiple times in this account. The tomb. It's the place where we will lay the bodies of our loved ones who have died. It is the place where we are reminded of our own mortality. It is the place we all, if we're honest, fear and dread. It is the place of horrible heartbreak and terminal finality. Or is it? Matthew concludes his account of the life of Jesus by walking us through Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection, and then concludes with what we know as the Great Commission, which we'll be thinking about this evening. He does that so that Jesus' disciples would enjoy fearless, hope-filled, purpose-focused lives as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. The ongoing drama following the crucifixion of Jesus, the King of the Jews, as I say, focuses our attention on the tomb. Matthew writes four scenes that are dramatically centred on the tomb. And as we do so this morning, I want to walk us through those four scenes in order that we can prepare our hearts to meet and celebrate communion this morning. The first of the scenes is the tomb occupied. If you could flick that on for us, thank you. The tomb occupied. That's coming from verses, that's 27, 57 through 61. If you have your Bibles, please follow uh, with me in the text. And the, the fact that Matthew records the occupation of the tomb, Jesus being laid in the tomb, reminds us of the tragic reality and still ongoing, to some extent, power of death. It was against Roman law to have a full funeral service for anyone who was executed by crucifixion because that would be honouring the dead and that would be, give credibility to their acts. So it was against the law to have a funeral for anyone who had been crucified. And Matthew, notice, paints a heartbreaking scene of the women who love Jesus helplessly watching him suffer and die on the cross. Look at verses 55 through 56. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. And following the courageous act of Joseph of Arimathea, who it is a courageous act, by going to Pilate to ask for Jesus' dead body... 
and then placing it in his own tomb out of his love and respect for Jesus, which we see happening in verses 57 through 60, notice again we're introduced to those women. We see the two heartbroken women, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, watching Jesus get buried. Look at verse 61. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. This is a tragic scene. Don't jump ahead in the, in the narrative. We know that it ends okay. But this is a deeply tragic scene that poignantly reminds us of the pain of watching helplessly and powerlessly as our loved ones suffer and die. And that's something that every one of us in this room will experience and, and, unless the Lord returns in the meantime. Suffering and death makes us feel so vulnerable and so powerless. It reminds us that there is a devastating power in death that stalks us all and that rightly fills us with dread and makes us weep. So as Matthew opens this and, 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 and continues the story of Jesus, the occupied tomb shows us that Jesus entered fully and completely into all of our sufferings. And he became obedient unto death, as the Apostle Paul says, even death on a cross, which we will discover had a purpose and a power never experienced in human history before. But the next scene, if you can move it on, is the power of unbelief, the tomb sealed. Verses 62 through 66. Why does Matthew record this? To show us that there is a power at work, not just the power of death in the human heart, but there is the power of unbelief. Jesus had been prophesying his own death and resurrection. There are at least three occasions in Matthew's gospel where he makes that explicitly clear. Matthew 16, 21, Matthew 17, 22, Matthew 26, 31 through 32. And it would appear that those occasions were Jesus teaching his own disciples, but it would also appear that his teaching had become more in the public domain. In the first year of his ministry, we read of his public ministry, the first time Jesus publicly goes to the temple as in his thir age 30, he's confronted by the rulers and the, and, the, and, the, and the Sanhedrin and the scribes and the Pharisees. And they say to him, they, he says to them, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. And we also have Jesus answering the sign question, again from the scribes and the Pharisees, give us a sign. If you're the Messiah, give us a sign. And in Matthew 12, 38 through 42, he points to the sign of Jonah. And when he's on trial for his life, he's answering again the Sanhedrin's question. He does so by saying, from now on you'll see the Son of Man coming in power and, power and great glory. John 26, 63 to 64. So Jesus claims that he was going to be risen from the dead and rise from the dead had become well known in the public domain at that time. Now we know that the disciples didn't get this. But his enemies, interestingly enough, seem to have grasped 
something of the significance of his resurrection claims. And they hated him, therefore, all the more. And that's why they're doing all that they can within their power to keep him in the tomb. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. This is showing us how deeply ingrained in the, hu- in the unregenerate human heart unbelief actually is. There is a world of difference, let me say this, between doubts and unbelief. They're chalk and cheese. They're not the same thing at all. The disciples, as we will see, were filled with doubts. And they were overwhelmed with sadness about Jesus' death. I'll say this, doubts are normal. (laughs) Doubts are normal. If you've got doubts about the, the, the person and work of Jesus, that's okay. That's normal. They can be dispelled, as we can see. And the Bible is full of help for people suffering with doubts. One of the things I would say, doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts. But doubt is not the same as unbelief. Unbelief is totally different. It is a willful power in the human heart that refuses to take God at his word and does everything in its power to discredit God's promises. Why is that? Why is that? Because true faith involves giving up your power. It involves giving up power to call the shots in your own life. And it giving up power to have control over your own life and submitting to Jesus. That's what faith calls us to do. To give up control of our own life and say, Lord, I'm not competent to run my life. I'm not capable of running my life. You know my life is a mess. You know that I'm heading to hell in a handcart because of the mess I've made of my life. I want to give control of my life over to you as the Lord of my life. That's what faith does and embraces the promises of God. That's what faith does. Unbelief, though, is a willful, deliberate act of the the heart that is self-destructive in its very nature, but will have none of that. So the tomb sealed shows us the self-willed power of unbelief. The next scene is the tomb revealed. Look at 28 through 1 through 4. I want to focus on verse 2 primarily. I'm calling this the divine comedy. This is God mocking the world's attempts to keep Jesus dead and buried. This scene is wonderfully dramatic and beautifully humorous. In the teeth of the most highly trained army on the face of the earth, who are in the service of the world's dominant superpower at that time, God sends one angel to mock the world's unbelief and shatter its power. This is the great restoration begun. Verse 2, there was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. The very act of the angel rolling back the stone, I don't suppose Joseph of Arimathea 
did it on his own. I think Joseph of Arimathea had help because we learn it was a big stone. He rolled a big stone, verse 60, in front of the tomb and went away. I think this was a two or three or maybe a four-man job. I don't think Joseph just laid Jesus' body in the tomb and rolled the stone. I think there were other people helping him. And then this one angel comes down, rolls the stone away, and he sits on it. The act of sitting on the stone is mocking our attempts to keep Jesus dead and buried. This is a wonderfully humorous picture of God mocking the world in all its God-hating, Jesus-rejecting unbelief. Notice what it says in verse 4. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. These highly trained soldiers were so terrified that they shook, just like the ground had shaken with a violent earthquake in verse 2, so that, notice the switch, these living soldiers who are allegedly guarding the dead body of Jesus become what? Like dead men. It's wonderful to realize that our God has a great sense of humor. Did you know God has a sense of humor? Well, he must have. Look at us. Our God has a brilliant, wonderful sense of humor. And that he shares with us. Things that make God laugh, he shares with us, his people, his children. Why? So that we begin to experience his comfort. God uses his sense of humor to open our hearts to receive his comfort. That's what's happening here. Do you know what what God laughs at? Here's three things that God laughs at. Psalm 2 verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. The rebels who are going to do everything they can to not have Jesus as king. The Lord laughs at them. Psalm 37, 13. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. Psalm 59, verse 8. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You scoff at all those nations. So the the act of the angel being sent from heaven, rolling away the stone and sitting on it, is God's sense of humor at work. The angel's job is not to let Jesus out. He's not there anyway. This isn't letting Jesus out of the tomb. This is rather demolishing unbelief, turning his disciples' doubts into faith and our tears into songs of joy. So scene three, the tomb revealed, shows us the glorious sense of humor that God has, which he uses to open our hearts to enjoy his comfort, which brings us to the next scene, the tomb empty. Again, look at verse 1, 28.1. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, here's these ladies, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, went to look at the tomb. Look at the emotions they are experiencing at the empty tomb as they receive comfort from the God of all comfort. They are transformed from terrified mourners to joy-filled worshippers. How? Through the God of all comfort. How does he do that? How does the God of all comfort comfort his children? There are three steps that we see them going through in their journey of their faith being strengthened. 
from fear to faith, from faith to sight, and from sight to service. From fear to faith. Notice what he said in verse 5. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen. Notice what he adds. Just as he said. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. He's reminding them of what Jesus has said. He's not here. He's risen just as he said. It's clear that Mary Magdalene, Southern Mary, and indeed all of the disciples had no clue that Jesus was actually going to rise from the dead. Even though he'd been saying it again and again and again and again, it, would, it was just going over their heads. Now at the most desperate moment of their lives, they're reminded again of what Jesus said. In order that our faith, their faith, might be strengthened because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. From fear to faith, from faith to sight. Verse 6, he's not here, he has risen just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. Come and I'll show you the place where he lay. He's not here, he's gone. He's risen, just as he said. Here's the place where he lay. Look, use your eyes, use the eyes that God has given you to look at the fact the tomb is now empty. Verse 7, then go quickly and tell his disciples, he's risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, now I've told you. There you will see him. He's gone ahead of you, there you will see him. Look at verse 9. Suddenly Jesus met them, greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet and worshipped him. Did you realise that the first eyewitnesses of the risen Christ were women? Do you realise that women in that day and that culture had no legal status? They couldn't appear in court and bear testimony. They were not allowed. They had Women, nah. Look, men, yeah, men, they tell the truth all the time. Men do. What? What does Jesus do? He chooses women to be the communicators of the gospel to his disciples. Go quickly, verse 7, and tell his disciples he's risen from the dead and he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. And they do see him before they get to Galilee. So when they do go and tell the disciples, he's risen from the dead, we've seen the Lord, they're bearing witness from sight, from faith to sight, from sight to service. Verse 10, this is what Jesus says to, his to, to these women. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid, go and tell my brothers to go into Galilee, there they will see me. We have our New Testaments. The New Testament is written by the first-hand eye and ear witnesses of the risen Christ. They're not compiled yonks after and people have died and rumour and all all the whisper mills been going. Every New Testament document that we have 
is written down within the lifetime of the first-hand eye and ear witnesses of the risen Christ. We may not physically see Jesus, but we can have the evidence of people who have. And it's given to us for the strengthening of our faith. The resurrection of the Son of God is God guaranteeing the restoration of the life we have all dreamed of and longed for. That's why, that's why I said it's the restoration begun. The resurrection is the promise of the restoration begun, the restoration of the life that we've all longed for. If you could describe the life that you long for, what would it include? What would you not have in the life that you long for? What would you exclude from the life that you long for? No death, no pain, no suffering, no heartbreak, no funerals, no police, no hospitals, no ambulance, no terrorist attacks on churches. Wouldn't you? Of course you would. It's the life we all long for. And the resurrection of the Son of God is God guaranteeing the restoration of the life we've all dreamed of, the life we all long for, a joy-filled life with him and with all of our loved ones who've gone before us and with all of our loved ones who will follow us home to be with him too. That's what we long for. It's how God wired you. Psalm 26, verses 1 through 3, reads like this. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are filled with joy. The tomb. Occupied. Sealed. Revealed, empty. He's not here. He has risen, just as he said. Let the God of all comfort minister his transforming power in you this Easter. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. We praise and bless you, Lord, that you have done great things for us. And we are filled with joy. Grant the reality that those women experience, and later on your disciples experienced, would be our first-hand experience. That our faith would be strengthened, that we would behold the risen Christ. Open the eyes of our minds, open the eyes of our hearts, that we may indeed in, be lost in wonder, love and praise as we behold our God this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing uh, the resurrection.